We'll jump in 10 seconds early. Good day and welcome to the podcast, podcaster, <laughs> the Goat Kicker podcast. How many times have I done this intro and I slaughter it? Really? Welcome to the Goat Kicker podcast. I am your host, Carl Van Halen. The V stands for Van Halen. This is episode six for those of you who listen elsewhere. For those of you singular who appear live, welcome Sean. I tried to get my word out earlier today a couple times, uh, strongly hinting to see if we could get a few people in the chat. My two goals still remain, according to Twitch, uh, get 50 followers, get five people in chat at once, and I'm determined to get one of those, and it seems easier to obtain the five people chatting at once, but what do I know? I am no longer in low geosynchronous orbit over the planet Earth, somewhere above Iowa, I am actually in Iowa. And I am in my new little, I'll call it an office, it's a corner of a room, and I'm very happy and fortunate to have this space. Um, I set this up for uh, anticipation of the good news I hinted at last week. That good news came true, so maybe there is something to that book, The Secret, after all. But I have been offered a job as an applications analyst, uh, working with pharmacy applications with Nebraska Medicine, and I accepted that position. Uh, my last day at uh, Meta Data Center will be on the 24th of this month, so a little bit of change is in the air, and as we've talked about before, uh, change with jobs and ch uh, changes in status with employment have been a running theme with Goad Kicker and all of its incarnations. I don't want to dwell too much on it because this show is narcissistic enough as it is, but um, so there should be some fun change. Getting to work from home is a big difference, and that's sort of the way the world is going now. I don't mind an office, but I was driving quite a bit, putting a lot of miles on my vehicle. Hey, hey. thanks. Thanks for that. We got two people in now. Fantastic. Um, so, yeah, it's going to save me some mileage on my vehicle that um, I once hauled my son to daycare in. And if I can get it to eke out a couple more years, he'll learn to drive on the thing. And that would be kind of fun. Um, as you can tell, I'm not really a new vehicle kind of guy. The Falcon... <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, the Falcon. I would rather have uh, the Maverick than the Falcon. I feel like the Falcon and I would be doomed to uh, start a cult. Yeah, I could do that as well. Um, so uh, this topic of this week, uh, just to kind of attach to uh, to my life situation, is change. And um, we talked a little bit about adult success uh, at a previous week. And let's talk a little bit about change. You know, we're at the beginning of the year. We just wrapped up the first month of the year. So if your New Year's resolution is going strong, you beat the majority. You're like at least one or two standard deviations from the mean here. Um, but uh, a lot of people make big changes at the start of the year. It just feels like a good time to start again. Um, the holidays also um, put a lot of extra stress on people's budgets and, and time. 
And so, uh, so yes, um, it's a good time to change. Those things are done. It's behind you. And January looks suitably boring and uh, wide open for, for tinkering. But as many of us find out, it's hard. But what makes change even harder, other than getting in those new routines and, and breaking habits and so on, is the fact that change is not easy by nature. Um, things seem to change quickly when you don't have control or if it's for something you don't care for. Um, I always say to my kids and who anybody else will listen that, you know, things rarely change for the better on their own. You, you don't wake up one day and suddenly, wow, the price of everything is down like 27% suddenly and um, less violent and the roads are maintained better than ever before. Um, any sort of positive change that happens takes so much work and it's such a gradual process that a lot of times, like they say in the old parables, uh, you'll plant a tree that you'll never eat fruit from. And that's as true in your personal life as it is in anything else. Um, if you decide today that you've changed your personal habits with spending, you're going to get control of your credit situation, you're going to get a control of your budget, uh, you're going to stop buying uh, hobby stuff uh, that you don't really have time to, to be involved with just for the sake of having the new and the new acquisition and keeping up with the Joneses or, or completing your collection or whatever it will be. If you decide today that you're going to do that and you're going to repair that part of your life, it doesn't happen. That decision, you could have all the conviction in the world but it doesn't happen. It takes a long time. It takes a process of several checks to even kind of get back on your feet and start paying payments and, and uh, putting money in savings and, and, and so on. Um, a lot of us look at change as a moment because that's how it's been portrayed in media to us or uh, in even conversation with others when people, I quit smoking cold turkey or, or, you know, that was the day that I knew I had to do something about my weight. But it's an uphill battle and a lot of times it's parabolic. I mean, you might have some success and then there's that time when you're not really getting any closer to zero. You just, you're making progress, but the gains are just a percentile of what they were before. Uh, and it's tough. It's tough. Um, this is the time that I feel like your resolve weakens. Because if you're like, if I'm going to be miserable anyway, why don't I at least stop and get a blizzard on the way home from Dairy Queen? I mean, I'm going to be miserable either way. Like the difference between weighing 257 pounds and 247 pounds really isn't that much. Uh, or... Um, I might as well buy these things that I want and put them on the shelf because I'm not making any progress with my credit. Um, the world around me is, is a nightmare of not associated with bettering my life or furthering my goals. Uh, and um, I just need that little dopamine put, punch, so I might as well give in. That conviction doesn't last, but it's the first step of change. So. 
where we need to go next is to each other. We need to help hold each other accountable uh, by encouragement uh, or negativity, whichever works best. Threat of bodily harm in some cases. I feel like that's what I've needed to uh, to stay on the on the straight and narrow when it comes to diets and so on. Sometimes just a random kind word from someone that knows that you're involved with making a lifestyle change uh, is more beneficial than you could possibly know. Um, I think a lot about my friends who've dealt with addiction, who've dealt with things like uh, uh, alcoholism or, or tobacco or, or, or worse, and, um, and uh, how they've needed a community to kind of help keep them on the straight and narrow. Not that they're not strong enough or convinced or or dedicated to their change, but it, you know, it really, really takes a little extra help to get through. And so I always encourage everybody, um, when I know they're going through some big life um, change, I try to check in on people. I try to give them a good positive word um, when I can. Uh, I think sometimes uh, there isn't like a great thing to say because you haven't been in their shoes sometimes, but just letting them know that you realize they're continuing that battle and they're struggling uh, is enough to kind of motivate them to go another lap around the track. Um, not incredibly long ago, it was before I had children, I think, or maybe it's after we had Colin, the dates get a little fuzzy. But it was one of my backslides into being a runner. And um, as you can tell by the camera, uh, I'm not a runner currently. But um, it's in my blood. I like to run. Um, I'm a very specific distance runner. I'm not a sprinter, and I'm not a cross-country runner. Um, I am about 400 meters and done. But... Um, I used to enjoy running. I could do about a mile or two, and it was enjoyable, and anything more than that was miserable. But I wanted to run. Um, I was going through this this phase at that time where I wanted to kind of regain that, that stamina that I once had where I could just decide to run and go run and, and be able to do it and, and carry myself for whatever length I, I decided I wanted to run that day. And so here locally, you know, just like any, you know, medium-sized city, there's plenty of opportunities to run. And uh, the big one in Omaha is the Corporate Cup run. But I wanted to prepare for that one. And so in order to prepare for that one, I wanted to do the Susan Komen run that they were having. And uh, I signed up for it. I drove over there on that morning. It was cold. Uh, I was there by myself. And, but I was determined. I was determined to do this. And um, there was a couple different lengths to that run. And I don't remember uh, what the specifics were, but there was a time very early on when you could branch off. You could branch off and go this other direction. And I chose not to branch off at that time. I'm like, man, I'm feeling pretty strong. I'm feeling pretty good. Um, no one here is really keeping like a, you know, a, you know, evil Knievel pace, you know, it's, it, everybody's just kind of leisurely jogging. And I feel like I could keep that up as long as anyone else. So, so I didn't turn off. And once you don't turn off, then you're locked into this trail. 
and you're running further and further and further from the starting line, which means you are further and further and further from your car. And then um, at one point, mercifully, it turns around and starts meandering back towards the staging area. It isn't a perfect loop, but it's a loop nonetheless. And I wanted to die. I did not have the stamina. I did not have the legs. I did not have the muscle or the discipline or uh, the consistency of running leading up to that event that I should have had. And um, as I neared the end, because this was the Susan Komen uh, run, um, they had a lot of volunteers, a lot of women volunteers. And amongst those volunteers were all the different Greek societies, all the sororities for University of Omaha. And I'm not even sure if they pulled some in from University of Nebraska or Creighton. There was a lot of them. And they were situated like every third or fourth corner. And so every time I would like, this is it. This is all that I can handle. I would run, run, start stumbling, get ready to quit. And then I would hear these high-pitched cheers and claps and them out in the street and you know, patting people on the back and sending them on their way. And there's all these pretty young girls and they're all very enthusiastic and you don't want to quit in front of them. So you run a little bit further and I would die a little bit more and then feel like, okay, that was it. I finally got out of earshot of them. It's time to, to reel it in. And then the next set of them would be there. And it was like that all the way to the finish line. And I'm here to tell you, I ran the whole way, but I've never felt that bad because of physical exertion in my entire life. I mean, I felt like I needed to like just lay down in the street and then like crawl to my car. I hurt. I wandered around. Um, I even felt a little on the delirious side, uh, not like medically, but just like I couldn't get my wits about me what I wanted to do. I wanted to sit. I wanted to stand. I didn't feel well. Um, I kind of followed people into where there was supposed to be this breakfast they were serving and I couldn't figure out how the lines worked and everything else. And I kind of cut in line and just grabbed the orange juice. No one stopped me. And I drank the orange juice and wandered to my car. Uh, eventually found it because when I parked, there was nobody around me. And then it was harder to find it when I was back. And so it was a miserable experience altogether. And I think when I was done, I got in the car and drove back. And if my memory serves me correctly, um, there's there's two different races that I kind of mix up. But I think this is the one where I drove and I either went straight to work or straight to church afterwards. And uh, I wouldn't recommend either to anybody after an experience like that. But the point is, without those girls cheering, without those sorority girls there, I wouldn't have finished that race. I didn't finish the race for the right reason. And it maybe wasn't the most healthy thing in the world for me to do, but I finished the race because of that. That's the power of motivation. And you don't know the power that you're having. Those girls had no idea that there was someone that was going to quit a hundred times, but every time he, he passed the Phi Deltas or the Kappas or whatever, uh, you know, uh, they didn't know that. They just were there to cheer and it was effective. So um, I would recommend that all of you in this community of 10 people that listen to this podcast that are all nerds of similar minds to, to be mindful of the struggles that each other is in. Most of us know each other in some way, either by name online or, um, or whatever. But, um, you know, a little kind word or a little question of how things are going goes a long way. 
And I think we've evolved past uh, this fallacy as men where we don't concern ourselves with other people. Um, I, that, that's no longer a thing. Um, and uh, it's time for us to, to wield that as a weapon and, and try to help each other become better. Uh, so no longer is it just lip service and polite. I think we need to be actively involved in trying to lift each other up. And this is a great way to do that. People are trying to initiate change in their life constantly. And sometimes it's private, sometimes it's public. But um, a little inquiry, a, a little curiosity, a little interest in how they're doing and, and how their life is can make a huge difference. And, um, you know, uh, I just want to be there for each other. So, so if you know somebody, for instance, who's trying to empty their shelves and not spend so much of their income on collectibles that you've seen them cycle through several times and get rid of because they regret the expenditure, they regret the mess that it makes of their living arrangements or whatever, um, maybe help them by not getting them hyped up for mass purchases and maybe asking, you know, hey, have you made any progress getting rid of this or that or you know, or, you know, I, I could take that off your hands if you'd like or, or something along those lines. That's maybe something from my own personal experience. But I know a lot of people who've had to make tough budgetary cuts of different sorts in their hobbies. And and um, me being super excited about uh, something that I know it will hook them um, probably isn't always appropriate. And uh, we need to work the other way around and try to show some solidarity. I think often of the Lenten season. I myself am not Catholic, but I'm Christian and I've worked around plenty of Catholics. For some reason, you can't throw a rock uh, in Omaha Council Bluffs area in healthcare without hitting a Catholic. And believe me, I've tried. But, um, but uh, Lenten season comes and people that you have never uttered a single thing that's even remotely faith-based suddenly come to work with ash on their forehead and then are, are pretty vocal about what they've given up for Lent. And it would be easy to be critical of those people or to lampoon them or, or, or to, uh, to purposely uh, do things that are contrary to whatever their, their Lenten sacrifice is, just to be a butt, to be a troll. Uh, trolls existed before the internet, for those of you who might be too young to remember. But, um, or you could just be uh, in solidarity with them because they're a human being and they're making a decision and it's not really your place to judge whether it's valid or not valid, I guess, um, no matter how ridiculous you might think it is. Um, and uh, I think th that sort of civility, that sort of recognition that other human beings in your vicinity have different experiences and different points of view I think all that stuff plays very nice together and um, it makes society better. Um, even if it's in a smaller uh, microcosm than, than the whole, uh, we need that civility and we need that uh, humanity sort of back in our intrapersonal relationships, whether it be work or home or wherever. And, um, and uh, I think we need to get it up to a particular level before this next election uh, and everything starts tearing us apart again. So I would just challenge you guys to go through some change and to support others who are going through some change in that time. 
And um, maybe uh, this would be a good time for all of us to uh, keep each other accountable and and to check some things off those to-do lists that we've had for a long time, uh, habits we need to break or behaviors we need to start, um, relationships we need to strengthen, and just uh, hold each other up uh, and uh, be involved in each other's lives. Uh, friendship is is tough, uh, but yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> Ash Wednesday, yeah. It, I'm a Protestant, and I'm a Protestant that came to the game late. So, I even even though I went to Bible college, we didn't spend a lot of time on the rituals of of the different denominations uh, because we, quite frankly, went to a Bible college where where folks uh, assumed that they were in the wrong anyway. So why learn about it? Uh, it was just a survey, perhaps, and they may have talked about it more than I let on, uh, and I just didn't pay attention, but. Um, I, I was shocked to get out into, especially when I went to the Jesuit University and, you know, everybody's Catholic and um, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, just, I just don't know. And I hate to mock it too much because all of us have our own little, our own little bubble we live in that everybody else from outside might think is different, which might help segue into this next thing I was thinking about. So I've been looking at uh, a lot of manga lately uh, as I've gotten back into it, just kind of dipping my toe back into this this past love of mine. And it's been a good exercise on two parts. One, it's been challenging. Wow, what happened to the light adjustment on that thing? That was bizarre. I just went like Donald Trump orange there. Um, uh, but it, it's been a challenge to... Uh, to not just purchase everything that I used to have or things that I love or things that I want or to look and see how many volumes are available and which ones are impossible to get and what would look good on a shelf and which are the seminal things and not seminal things and the quirky things and blah, 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 blah. And it's been a nice challenge for me to make my own personal change to only read things digitally. And I'm only buying things that I'm going to read um, although that's the lie we tell ourselves constantly, but I've been, uh, I've been filtering my purchases uh, as I read them. So all the manga that I've downloaded on my Kindle Paperwhite, for the most part, I've either read or, or they're next up on the pile. Um, there's no backlog uh, of stuff for the sake of having a collection. There's that gross um, thing that I've talked about before and I'll talk about again where you build a collection with the intentions you think of someone coming in and judging uh, your ability to curate uh, whether or not you're a real fan or not. Silver Surfer Epic I bought today. Yeah, I hope you do. Which one did you get? Which Silver Surfer Epic did you buy today? Or are you just teasing me? I just gave all mine away, so. But anyway... Um, so it's been a good challenge for me, not number three. Is that, is that one with parable in it then? I assume parable and maybe the John Byrne issue number one. Oh, it's a new release today. Then maybe I don't know what's in it. Maybe I don't recall. Uh, so I'm not buying all this manga, although I did buy some because I can't help but treat my shelves like a hall of fame for the things that I'm going to revisit for sure. And um, I fell in love with a couple things, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Chainsaw Man. I have not read Chainsaw Man. Um, 
I should definitely check that one out, huh? I'll put it on the list. It, it's a little bit less painful to do it digitally too because they're like half price. And so a lot of the stuff on my Kindle is stuff that I bought when I saw that it was trending. I wanted to see what the kids were into these days. And so I would just buy volume one. Um, I don't always love the uh, grossest uh, of of the manga, but um, but I would check it out. I, I'm not opposed to reading the first volume of anything. And yeah, Monsters back in print. Um, I would like to get those as well. Uh, I think there's like a nine or 11 volumes, which always bums me out because manga takes up so much space. But uh, I saw Menachem had volumes one and two, so I'm tempted to get those again myself. They aren't available digitally, which sucks because I would buy them in a heartbeat digitally. But um, it's tough to read them digitally for me, not only because the Paperwhite isn't the most ideal way um, with the resolution the way it is, and it might be better if the device was a little bit bigger. If I bought a bigger device, I have an older one. But my eyes are terrible. I think my subs- or my prescription has changed yet again. I have bifocals um, when I wear my glasses. Uh, and, uh, and, and to read my Kindle without my glasses with some of that manga is very hard. Um, they do this thing in manga where they don't always use word bubbles um, or the print will be very small. Or uh, they'll use uh, text over the image itself, and then they'll put a white border around the letters, which on a regular size piece of paper, you know, it's it, the contrast is enough. It's not hard to read, but um, but on a digital device with bad eyes and, and old eyes, it, it's tough. And so it can be a challenge to read some of it. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, it's been challenging because some of the differences with manga in storytelling and you know silly things like the direction, like even on the e-reader, you have to tap left to turn the page left instead of right. They didn't flip the commands, which they could have done. They they um, uh, definitely uh, uh, didn't design it to to make it any easier for a Western reader, which is fine with me, but uh, it, it's just like a weird. Uh, it's a weird uh, thing to have to get acclimated to. And it made me think a lot of y- the other day, like how different the cultures are and, um, you know, the things you start to take for granted and some of the illustrations and some of the shorthand they have in their uh, illustrated storytelling that's different than the shorthand in ours. And, um, you know, things like the bloody nose uh, a lot of times means someone's aroused, you know, sexually to the point when they're, gushing blood out of their nose uh it's weird shorthand like that that we don't have in our comics um and it was interesting to think about like and this is the stupidest example but this is something that i came up with and here goes that light adjustment again that is so weird i wonder if i just get a little bit too close and it tries to adjust or if it's periodic that's super weird but but anyway um where's it going with that oh uh so Urine. If you're going to illustrate urine in a color comic book, a color animated film, what color is P? P is yellow, right? And you know that from the minute you're a child uh, to the rest of your life that P yellow, urine yellow, Mountain Dew looks like urine, blah, 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 blah. What if you were in a culture that stayed so well hydrated that P was typically clear and yellow P 
wasn't that common unless you had some sort of kidney injury or illness. Like, I think about that because, like, it's very possible. I mean, your morning pee would be condensed because that's the way your body works unless you had some sort of fractured sleep cycle that involves staying continually hydrated then as well. And I think about all these little cultural things that we take for granted, and, and, and I get off on those tangents. But it makes me wonder if we can ever fully really appreciate um, cultural, cross-cultural art because we don't get all the nuance in there or, or the culture stuff. And you can try to study cultures a little bit and, and understand where they're coming from, um, but you don't always understand the what and the why. And you're usually relying on someone to, to break it down for you. And a lot of times it's like a person of your own background that's that's gone native as we talked about before who's explaining these things and they might have quite an insight on it from experience but they may not have that full cultural uh, understanding of what it really means on a visceral level or or whatever and it just seems like you can be tied to the land a little bit of where you're born when it comes to storytelling and and um, cliches and things of that nature um, and uh, Part of what makes manga frustrating to read and exciting at the same time, I think, is all those little cultural oddities that seem foreign and weird and they seem poorly executed or or out of left field. But, you know, they're coming from a culture where these things are their comic books. And then there's that whole confirmation bias. I don't know if that's the proper word either, but... Uh, of of only looking at a cross-section of what has been imported to the Western market as it is. Like, we're probably only getting the most sensational, weird, different from the stuff we have now. Um, there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of manga about baseball players and baseball teams and girl baseball teams and girl baseball players. And, and sports manga is a very big deal over there. And we don't get all of it over here. And so we have a few. Um, we have one called Blue something or other that I'm going blank, and it's about a soccer team. Um, and we have Captain Suba or Subasa. I can't remember how that was pronounced, but who was soccer as well. There's a famous baseball one. Um, there's an anime we received, uh, but we haven't uh, got manga for it about sumo wrestling that I've recently discovered, have not watched it. Uh, because I like the real sumo enough that I don't want to go completely nutso. Um, there's uh, manga about pro wrestling and boxing. I think one of the most famous of the classic manga is actually about boxing. Um, there are detective manga, all those slice of life manga, harem manga, romance, romance between two girls, romance between two boys. I mean, it's there's no end to it, the variety. And we're only getting a slice of those things. And whatever sells sort of informs the market. So there again, it's sort of hard to judge uh, what the default uh, execution is on these things because there's this weird just selection uh, that we're only shown. Um, the only way to really know for sure is to learn the language and experience everything on their current shelves. But even then, there's nuance that's lost because you didn't grow up in the Japanese family system in uh, expectations of the workplace and uh, the school system and, and all those. So it's very 
very interesting to think about when you're ingesting fiction is about those cultural differences and how much we take for granted and how deep does it go. I mean, something as much as the um, weather uh, in the locale from which you're raised and the seasons and, and so on can have a lot to do with your outlook on life. Um, and there's always going to be art that, that transcends that, that's universal and so on, but it's also going to make a lot of art that seems really janky to someone that doesn't have that background. And I think it's most evident perhaps in their attitude towards sexuality and nudity uh, in other countries when we get those comics over here and then there's a debate whether or not they need edited and if they aren't edited then it changes their uh, audience and the people who are quote-unquote old enough to to read that content maybe don't enjoy that overall content because it wasn't aimed at that age group it was aimed at someone with a, with a lower life experience um, and so it never really finds its audience so anyway those are just some random thoughts I've had recently uh, as I ingest this this media that wasn't made for Carl Smith. And um, it's been fun. It's been fun to revisit it. There's a lot of good stuff out there. Um, not that there isn't plenty of good stuff to read anyway. And I like to gripe all the time uh, about Marvel and DC comic books. But um, there's a lot of good stuff there, too. Uh, just prior to this broadcast, um, my friend Menachem who uh, owns Escape Pod Comics, was commenting that uh, he had read, uh, he was relaying to me, I should say, that Marvel and DC nearly have as many titles as they had in the 90s. Um, and of course now the, the variant cover is an even bigger deal. And that's crazy to think about. But I have noticed an uptick when I go to the comic book store that um, for a while there, there wasn't a lot of titles. Didn't DC pair back to like a precious few? And um, I don't remember if when they launched the new 52 that they launched with 52 titles or that was their goal was to hit 52 titles or whatever. But Batman alone has a couple dozen like Batman family. So plus now with their black label and all that other jazz, it's there's a lot to pick from. There's a lot to pick from, and no one should be feeling like there's nothing to read. So, from what I'm hearing from around the way, people are enjoying the shorter Goad Kicker. So we will keep this short. So I'm going to just take a quick break, and then I'll be back to tackle one more topic, and then we'll call it a week. So, talk amongst yourselves. Stopping into a Barnes & Noble now is a lot like going into a comic book shop that's been around for five to ten years, and um, they've gotten comfortable with, uh, with what's selling and what isn't, and they've sort of stopped backfilling um, a little bit of everything because they've realized the futility of trying to be all things to all people. So in the glory days of whatever weird economy that once existed when I got into pharmacy school, for instance, and we had a Borders literally across the street from a Barnes & Noble, and they were both just filled to the gills with books of every topic and CDs and movies and everything, um, they've really backed off. And Barnes & Noble now is, is, 
you know, is more pushing plushy dolls and Moomin things. There's more expensive Studio Ghibli uh, collectibles and puzzles and My Hero Academia than there is science fiction novels. And the one in Omaha, we still have a Barnes & Noble. We might have two. I know for a fact we have one because it's the one I went to. But, um, you know, they've done this thing where they no longer fill the shelves. They have uh, foldable boxes that are cardboard that they use to as filler so they can present a book to the front and make it look like the shelves are full. Uh, they have spacers that they use. The selection um, is not very deep. Um, there was a Borders when they went out of business. We had several Borders. Um, and there was one on Maple or Blondo. I can't remember which. I think it was on Maple. This is good local uh, street talk for anyone that listens outside the Omaha metro area. But anyway, the one that was over there, when it went out of business, you know, they sold everything at a discount, which probably was about the same price you could get stuff on Amazon for. But uh, a lot of their books were things that were out of print and stuff because they kept taking on stock and not sending anything back. And at that time, I was able to purchase an enormous amount of the Black Library books, the Warhammer books, uh, Warhammer 40K, um, at a discount and stuff that wasn't usually readily available because they had backfilled all that stuff and done so uh, frequently. And even as the new editions came out, those things remain on the shelf. Um, that isn't the case anymore. Um, they'll have like the newest copy of something. When it comes out, they'll have a copy or zero copies. Um, it makes me wonder sometimes how they choose what they choose when it comes to the booksellers. But um, I'm, sure, uh, I'm sure it's an art form that you learn when that's your business. But uh, when you look at like the manga, for instance, they've chased graphic novels completely out of where they used to exist. I mean, they moved them from one end of the store to over where the manga is, and now they had some a couple of sparse shelves that used to be the D&D books. Well, now D&D has caught fire, so it gets a more prominent uh, shelf, and they've moved it over to by where they have their board games, which that area has shrunk a little bit in its own. But those two little shelves that used to be D&D and related game books are now... Uh, Marvel and DC and independent graphic novels. And then the whole shelf, uh, about a quarter of the length of the store, hooking around to the side and around the front, uh, so it's a C-shaped area, is all manga, manhwa, and light novels, Japanese light novels. And um, they have a lot of stock, a lot of stock. And so it's a really weird experience to go into a Barnes & Noble. Um, the big joke that I have with a friend of mine who I won't out is that the stores in, in Council Bluffs, when they carry sequential um, illustrated fiction, is they never backstock the first two volumes. If you want issue three, if you want issue seven, sure, it's there. Um, but it, it's impossible to get the beginning of a series. And um, at first, I thought this Barnes & Noble was the same way. Some of the more popular series and some that were like formerly popular that I was kind of surprised they still kept pretty stocked um, had almost a full run with multiples of some of the volumes, but they would be missing volume number one or the omnibus that has number one through three in it. And it just baffled me. 
but then I found display tables. You know, Barnes and Noble is famous for their little display tables, and they had stacks and stacks and stacks of manga, uh, several copies of the same issue. Some of them were new ones. Some of them were just random uh, volume numbers. Some were uh, number one. You know, lots of first volumes that were marked with a sticker: buy one get one at fifty percent off, which is genius. And um, and you could, for the most part, a, a current series, uh, you could you could get number one pretty readily. Um, but there was still plenty of the more classic stuff that they just had volume two, or they had volume three, four, six, and nine, you know, uh, which isn't very conducive for sales when you're dealing with sequential fiction. But it's got to be difficult as well because how much money are you going to outlay to keep those backfilled? If the steam is leaving that series and moving on to the next shiny thing, you're just going to be stuck with even more books. So I, my heart goes out to retailers for those reasons, but it's definitely frustrated when you have a little bit of money earmarked to go and buy some new books and they don't have anything that you want. And the things that you do want, they don't have the first volumes. And you end up having to go to Amazon or, or some similar place anyway and, um, and order it. One of the most egregious things that I saw today, though, wasn't so much their stock of manga being devoid of titles and volumes that I wanted, but it was Tor had a new edition of Glenn Cook's The Black Company. And they have uh, a new line uh, as they do of essentials and I assume there are other books in this series I wouldn't think they would just roll out the black company and let it stand alone as the sole example of their essential fantasy or science fiction novel um, usually when a company does an essential line they do uh, pretty bare bones what I would call minimalistic uh, cover work uh, trade dress because they want to make it look classy and timeless uh, also, they're probably pro uh, producing it on the cheap. It's something that they've had rights to and sales have cooled, and so they're trying to stoke those fires again for a new generation of reader. Um, the Black Company is also an IP that in this time of the the Lord of the Rings Amazon show and the Wheel of Time and all the other nonsense that's going on with... Uh, with uh, Game of Thrones and all that, it seems like it'd be a good time to maybe take a second look at the Black Company. But um, but who knows? Maybe we've we've shown that we can't really support uh, fantasy to the level where uh, they're throwing money at everything yet. But anyway, they have this new edition of the Black Company, and it's got one of the most horrendous, boring covers. I mean, the book instantly looks like it's fifty years old. But the worst part of it is, is that th this book has never had great covers. The first editions, everything, nothing is iconic. Like we were spoiled by TSR. Um, TSR went so hard on their books. Those images are burned into my mind. I can see those Larry Elmore paintings now, nude without any sort of word or border or anything. And I know the characters. I know which book. I know which volume in the series it was. I know if it was Forgotten Realms or it was Dragonlance. You know, those things were iconic. Yes, Almore, 
yeah, Elmore doing a black company, I would just die, right? Like, I wouldn't even know how to pick what I would want him to illustrate. But what I wanted to show here was this is my copy of the black company. This is probably, and mine's destroyed because I got it like at half price books. At some point, it got moist or, or heat in it, like made the lamination bubble. Uh, the sticker they used for the price was like completely welded to the cover and you couldn't remove it. Um, but it's this beautiful cover and uh, it's still not even the most attractive thing, nothing that would stick in your mind. Until I pulled it off the shelf, if you asked me what the cover of the Black Company edition I had, I couldn't explain the elements of this, but at least it's attractive and not weird. Um, for some reason, Glenn Cook's books just don't get treated well, except for some of his science fiction books, which, like The Dragon Never Sleeps, had some gorgeous cover art that had nothing to do with the book. And um, But spaceship art, you know, um, we've been trained as science fiction readers that uh, it never has to do anything with the book. As long as it has a fantastic painted cover that evokes science fiction, we don't care that it has nothing to do with the interior. Matter of fact, the more that it has to do on the cover with the interior, the less likely that the interior is any good. That's usually my experience with science fiction books. But um, they put this one out. Tor put out this Chronicles of the Black Company. Um, they did two volumes that cover all six at that time novels, and I think a seventh one has come out since. Of course, you can't get it in the same trade dress. There was a time when this was becoming the standard for uh, fantasy compendiums, this larger, uh, thicker, uh, taller book. That's changed again. They've gone to the smaller trade paperback size. Um, those dimensions always change because they don't want the shelves to be too samey. And I understand there's a lot of gamesmanship with it as well as far as making you feel like you get your bang for your buck and to stick out or, or to look similar enough to whatever else is out there. If you're writing a young adult horror, for instance, you wanted it formatted like the Twilight books so that it looks similar too, not because you were trying to trick people into buying it, but because that muscle memory is already there. Um, so it's interesting to watch the evolution of, of these books. But Glenn Cook, man, he always gets the short end of the stick with the packaging. And sometimes I wonder, like why he, he's still with us but i wonder why the estate uh, with him at the helm uh, doesn't push harder to get something better um, in the form of like maybe one of these marquee uh releases like we see with um, the folio society for instance or um east eastman or easton press eaton press you know, they do those low print run, high quality, limited edition, illustrated, hardbound, you know, ribbon bookmark. They've done them for way worse books than these black company books. Um, I think they would be deserving. So I wanted to take some time on my podcast to appeal to those of you who like fantasy to pick up Glenn Cook, uh, The Tales of the Black Company. Actually, the first one is just called The Black Company. And start there. And um, it's military fantasy, but it's not military uh, necessarily in the way you would consider it. It's not rank and file military. It's um, basically what would happen if 
BlackRock or some private military contract security force existed in a fantasy world. And um, sort of the shenanigans that come up with contracted soldiers for hire and the conflicts that they get involved in. And it has some of the most imaginative and unique villains and um, and magic systems uh, of any book that I've read in a long time. I think I've read Black Company, Shadows Linger, and I think I almost finished The White Rose at one time and I just got distracted with something else. So I've never read past the first trilogy um, of these books, which I'm ashamed to say, but um, I will revisit them soon enough. But, uh, but yeah, don't judge a book by its cover in this case. If you happen to see that, it looks like an old book. It looks older than it is. I mean, these books are only from the 80s, late 70s at the best. I don't remember what the publication date was for The Black Company. But um, the book itself looks like it's something that came out contemporary with Lord of the Rings. And that's nonsense. It shouldn't look like that. It should look fresher. And this is a very modern story. When you read it, in fact, it feels gritty in a way that Georgia R. Martin's, uh, you know, uh, Song of Fire and Ice feels uh, that everybody thought was so fret refreshing and, and so new. Um, Fantasy's been doing it. But it's 84. Thank you. I couldn't find it as I was talking, but um, 84. So, yeah, it's pretty contemporary. I mean, that's, what, 40 years old now almost, which makes me insane but it's definitely not from the 60s it's not like frederick pohl or something like that where you're like how old is this book you know so anyway give the black company a chance between books two and three interesting it, so this wasn't a continuation i'm surprised he went to that well but you know moorcock recently put out new stories for elric because they finally collected them and put out new editions of elric's in um publication order not chronological order maybe it's the other way around maybe it's no it's chronological i can't remember which order they put them in but um but uh he put out a brand new book um uh, like temple of the forgotten gods or something like that and uh and he um wrote entirely new stories but, but did them at like i think they're prequels, but I'm not entirely sure, to The White Wolf. I think they're prequels. I don't think they're like the final days of Elric. And I was kind of surprised that he too kind of went back to that more youthful, radical period in that character's life. Um, uh, I don't know. I don't know what brings these writers back to fill in the gaps. Um, I don't always like it. But I'm always willing to give it a try. And something as episodic as fantasy, when they go on these adventures, you know, it wouldn't make sense to write a book, you know, for Hickman and Weiss to write, you know, what happened between book two and three of, you know, the dragons of autumn twilight or whatever. You know, it wouldn't make sense to try to squeeze another book in there somewhere or some Stephanie Meyer style and, and, rewrite it as uh, a different point of view um i don't know if there's a, f a fear to write something new or something too final or to fiddle with something that you felt was adequately final before 
or if when they talk to their publisher, the publisher isn't interested in new. Um, they want nostalgia. They want to return to the familiar. I'm not sure. And um, I'm not really versed on the trends currently. And I don't know that like a lot of these writers are popping back out to revisit these, you know, 80s, 90s um, series again. Uh Moorcock, of course, wrote Elric over the course of like three decades, so it's no surprise that he keeps going back to that well. But, um, but yeah, I don't know what the current trends are, but it does seem weird to me that they would go back and do like a prequel or, or squeeze a wedge, like do a 2.5, you know. But again, with the Black Company and their adventures being somewhat episodic, uh, it probably wouldn't be too much of a stretch. I'm a big fan of like the Ian Fleming approach and you just write a bunch of stories with the same character and let the fans sort out the chronological, you know, chronological order later. Um, I think that's the way that Moorcock worked as well. Um, I don't know anything about Sherlock Holmes. I don't, don't know if they're written sequentially. Um, Tarzan books aren't sequential. Uh, and there's a, a load of those. Conan isn't sequential. Um, they're just stories with that character and Lord help you if you try to make uh, an overarching narration of, of everything that's going on. Um, I spent the better part of one year reading an enormous stack of Doc Sampson books that I bought uh, at uh, the local bookstore or used bookstore. And um, it broke my brain a little bit because they're all so similar and, and they weren't great, but they were fun. But there was no common sense to characters coming and going in there. There was no chronological order to speak of. It was just episodic content featuring the same players. And I like that. I like that approach, but I don't think it serves modern model, uh, modern writers well. Uh, I think that there needs to be a plan and get in and get out. And um, hopefully, uh, hopefully we get some new stories from some of these other authors that are still with us on properties we like. But, you know, the Hickman and Weiss came back, did they not? And tackled Dragonlance again, and it didn't set the world on fire. And I've heard good things about the book. I'm just shocked that people didn't love it and want more and start like this resurgence of interest, especially with D&D putting out Dragonlance as its new materials for 5e, although they did it just right before they made everybody crazy angry. So... Maybe the timing wasn't right, but I just don't know why young people don't love Dragonlance more, for Pete's sake. TSR changed the way we look at licensed material. Um, they took uh, something that shouldn't have a literary uh, arm that was successful. Star Wars did that too with the extended universe once they got you know going. It was that Del Rey that had that for such a long time. And, uh, you know, Timothy Zahn and uh, Kevin Anderson, was it? Or Paul Anderson, Kevin Anderson, I don't remember who it was. But, you know, they did such a great job um, writing in that licensed world that it made you forget that you're supposed to hate licensed material. And, uh, and I think there's a lot of great fiction out there, both prose and illustrated that owes a huge debt to uh, to TSR and to whoever had the Star Wars license there for a while 
for legitimizing the, the fact that you can you can build a career on um, other properties from other media. And um, I don't know. Uh, I, I wish the young people liked the Dragon Lance. Is that so much to ask? They're making a new Magnum PI show for Pete's sake and a new Night Court. So can't we at least get a return to the world of Kryn? They're making Spelljammer again for Pete's sake. And uh, the bastardized TSR, uh, which will never come out because of legal reasons, although they puff their chests up and say that they will, is threatening a return to Star Frontiers, which makes me happy to see the font, but angry to read what's going on behind the scenes. So I can give up that dream of of being tempted once again to buy a science fiction role-playing game that I never play. So anyway, this one's going a little longer than I hoped and a little looser, but I just wanted to, again, Glenn Cook, the Black Company. If you're a fantasy reader, it doesn't take long to read that first book, and it will knock your socks off, and you'll have some new favorite uh, fantasy characters that you didn't know you needed in your life. And most of them are villains. <laughs> we should have the D&D cast some night and just let people argue over who the, the, the best uh, characters are in that literature. Um, you know, in ninth grade, I would have told you that, of course, Dritzt was the pinnacle of all D&D fiction. But... Um, Dritzt is the one that I got the most sick of uh, as the years went forward, and I got the most eye rolls. Uh, you know, uh, every time I saw a new book about Dritzt and the legacy of the Drow and the Spider Queen and all that jazz. But if you ask me on any given day which TSR book am I most likely to revisit first on my Audible listening list, and it's going to be The Crystal Shard every time. And, um, I listened to Huma not long ago, and it got me pumped up. Crystal Shard is not Dragonlance, but uh, but it's from that same era of we had it way better than we had any idea we had. And um, I don't know. I don't know who my favorite character would be. Um, I'll have to think about that, and I'll bring it up on a future show. I think just about half of the people who listen to this on any regular basis uh, have read or currently still read D&D materials, so it won't be completely lost on everybody. But, all right, wrapping it up, Glenn Cook, Make Him a Rich Man. This guy wrote these books in his spare time and had a full-time day job, much like a couple of guys that I know who are present right now on this podcast, and so he's always been an inspiration to me. Uh, I believe he worked for like Ford Motor Company or something and just kind of worked on these things on the side and wrote just a string of intelligent, unique, underrated, underappreciated books in both the fantasy and the science fiction genre. And I'm still convinced that The Dragon Never Sleeps would have been a remarkable series. His publisher did not want a series. They wanted one book. And so we got a book that's actually the size of like three books in one, 
and it still doesn't quite do uh, what I think he could have done given some space. So I think he's always had an uphill battle, but he's made a nice living for himself and has a nice legacy. And I would be jealous, uh, or not jealous, I would be completely satisfied if I had one book published by uh, an actual publishing house that I produced that is, is equal quality of anything his that I've read. So um, support that man until we find out he's a crazy Trump-backing anti-vaxxer and we have to walk back this podcast, which happens all too often in the world of comics and genre fiction. But I digress. Until next week, everybody, thanks for showing up tonight. We had three in the chat. I think that might be a new record, which doesn't make me depressed at all. And uh, hopefully next week we can get to that five mark. Um, But if not, that's cool. Uh, Glad to see everybody pop in, and I really do appreciate the support. Doing this podcast is um, a good exercise in, um, in planning for me, in execution. Um... I know that it's scheduled on Wednesday nights. I know that there's a few people who will listen to it, if not live, later in the week. And I get enough feedback every once in a while that people seem to still appreciate the random uh, bits of my thoughts. And, um, you know, oh, four. We got four. Swim the Bird says we had four. Fantastic. We're almost there. Uh, But anyway, I appreciate you guys for supporting this. I'll continue to do it. Once that Final Fantasy uh, Pixel remasters drops for PlayStation, though, we'll probably take a break from this live stream, and I'll do the audio version of it uh, without my pretty, pretty face uh, over the top of me streaming, playing Final Fantasy on PlayStation 4 because I like to stay a whole generation behind on my gaming platforms. So until next Wednesday night... I'll see you guys all on the other social medias. Take care of yourselves, and please reach out and help take care of others. Good night.